the Sport Industry Access Podcast, episode 147. What skill sets do you need to pursue a career in high performance development coaching? Welcome to another episode of the Sport Industry Access Podcast. I'm your host, Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who is a sports expert in a specific field in the sports industry, especially if you have an interest in pursuing coaching. I hope today's episode can be useful to you with regards to your interests and needs. Now, getting back to today's show, this week's special guest is Tim Harper. Tim is a high performance and development coach with over 10 years of experience working in elite sport, working with a range of athletes in different sports such as rugby, tennis, motorsports and many more. Now his vision is really to support aspiring athletes and teams and sport organisations who are really restricted with regards to achieving their sporting excellence. For that reason, it's brilliant to have Tim as a special guest on the show and that's when today's episode Tim will share his sports grid journey and explain to you the skill sets you need to pursue a career in high performance coaching. Tim, it's great to have you on the show. Please can you share your sports career journey to listeners? When did it all start? Yeah, of course. Well, firstly, thank you very much for having me on uh, as a guest. You've got a really good podcast going on. So it's great to feature uh, and a big hello to all your listeners. Um, So I guess my career in sport started like most people. I enjoyed sport from a young age, playing sport, uh, cross country and middle distance running was my thing. As a young kid, and then in my early teens, I discovered rugby. And, and like like most people, I was never going to be good enough to play at an elite level. Uh, so I was naturally drawn towards sort of sports science and, and later strength and conditioning uh, because I sort of always enjoyed the training side of sports. So I guess it was a kind of natural progression. Uh, so, so long story long, I ended up at, at Brunel University in West London studying sports science on the exercise physiology pathway which i don't think exists anymore but uh and also sort of throughout my university days i was doing various voluntary roles and then was lucky enough uh, to work under chris williams at the british army rugby team um for my sort of final two years at uni as well um and then when i left left university i uh, i joined saracens uh, initially as a as an intern um before sort of being rewarded with a paid role around six months in uh, first with the first team and then to later spend sort of three years with the academy um, so I guess Saris is, is really where I sort of got my stripes as a as a practitioner and then after I say so sort of three years or just over three years with Saris I joined London Scottish Rugby Club down in, in southwest London uh, during a, a pretty intense period of growth um, or, or not really growth but more funding uh, we had sort of James Buckland and Mike Friday, Simon Amore running the, the rugby side of things. And I initially joined as their, the head of S&C, um, but then moved into their head of performance, running all aspects of the sports science and, and medicine departments. And it was a bit of a whirlwind at, at Scottish. Uh, we enjoyed some relative success before, as is so often the case in championship rugby, we lost a bit of that funding freedom. Uh, and I left the club during a bit of a, a mass exodus. 
And unfortunately, uh, within a year or so, I, I only I only knew sort of one person uh, at the club from the, the two or three years I'd spent there. So I mentioned that. So I think I learned a huge amount from that kind of meteoric rise followed by a big crash. Um, I think firstly, how tough that is personally coming from a very sheltered environment at Sarries, which was by no means easy, but it was very stable. Um, and London Scottish was none of that. Um, so I probably became a little bit more streetwise at Scottish, um, partly because of the responsibilities I had, but also the circumstances and the challenges that we went through as an organisation. Um, as I say, yeah, I left Scottish, uh, and then I spent a good summer plus a few months working out sort of my next move, I think is often the case when you get to that kind of um, period in your career. Uh, and during that time, I, I spent a bit of time on the road. Um, so my partner, she's a bit of a Zambian, Zimbabwean, South African, Mongol. Uh, and on a visit down to the kind of family farm in Zambia, I had the opportunity to visit uh, the Olympic Training Center and spend some bit of time with some of the sports teams down there. And that was really the trigger point for the, the kind of next stage of my career, uh, which is, I guess, what I'm doing now, which is probably a little bit more left field. But I know we're going we're to talk about that a little bit later on. But uh, that's kind of the whistle stop tour of my career to date. I find this really interesting. I really do, Tim, and I've got to go back in time. But really quickly, just relating to what you've just said, how important is it for people to treat their career as a journey? Because you've just really illustrated a great um, example throughout your life. But reflecting now, how have you looked at your career as a journey really quickly? Well, I think I didn't. And that's probably the problem. I didn't for a long time. And I think that we get I was probably typical of students coming out where I thought that you have to almost take over the world instantly um, and if I didn't do it now I was never going to do it um, but I think you're right I think if if you do look at it as a journey um, then and it's going to have multiple stages and different sort of themes throughout then you're going to be in in a better situation. And just going back in time with regards to you realizing that you weren't going to be an elite athlete can I ask what inspired you to do a sports science degree just for students who are weighing up different options from a career perspective, from an educational point of view? Yeah, I mean, um, I think it was just a natural thing for me to go into. I think sort of 12 years ago or so, whenever I started university, it, it probably was still a fledgling degree to, to go and do. I don't think it wasn't the same as it is now. Um, and actually, my advice now for sort of people who want to go and study in this field would be to to go and study something um, really broad like sports science if you don't quite know what role you want to do. But if you're quite set on what you want to go and do, then then study something that's sort of a little bit more uh, vocational. So if you want to end up being a sports scientist, why don't you go and study biomechanics or physiology? Um, that just gives you a little bit more depth. And just from a university perspective for graduates now how have you seen your education supported you to where you are right now <laughs> yeah well I think it opens doors and as I say like I think back 11 12 years ago it probably had a little bit more market value than it does today simply because it was a less congested field in terms of the content I'm going to be honest not a huge amount of what you learn at university supported my applied career but I see that in the same way as someone coming out of uni with a geography degree probably doesn't use a huge amount of that in their grad scheme with a big corporate. But I think that kind of misses the point. And I know there's a growing appetite uh, or demand from students and indeed from the industry um, that students should come out with all this kind of up-to-date applied knowledge. And I think there is a legitimate argument for closing the gap there. But really, for, for me anyway, university is opportunity to develop 
well, in my day, we used to call it graduate attributes. And to have three or four years where it's pretty much the only time as an adult until you retire, where you have an enormous amount of sort of free time to indulge a thirst for knowledge. And I mean, I worked a few jobs sort of relating to my future career at university, but I, I think it, it provided a setting to a, apply knowledge, get things wrong without consequence, um, and learn that textbooks don't have uh, all the answers. Um, and to attend talks and lectures and develop networking skills. I think those are the things that are really important about university. And I think in that regard, my sports science degree is, has really provided that springboard for my entire career. So just on that note, just to put you in on the spot a little bit, if this is OK, relating to your experience with your time with the uh, Army rugby team, did you apply some of that knowledge from the classroom onto the field with them when you had that like experience opportunity reflecting now? So I think with the with the army less so because I was sort of it was a more kind of formalised internship under under sort of qualified staff. I think the the local sports clubs and the university sports clubs which sort of utilised my services those were the guinea pigs and those were where I, I did all the all the mistakes and that's where I messed up. But essentially, I was sort of I was working with a kind of fledgling rugby league team and stuff, and you, you can't do a whole lot wrong um, as long as you're kind of working within your kind of remit. And it is a it is a time to learn, and, and I think that that would be a big big thing for students to go and do is is, is go and volunteer your time and, and be open about the fact that you don't necessarily have all the answers, but you're going to try stuff and stuff some stuff you might pull off and some stuff probably won't get pulled off. I think you've highlighted a really important point there, and I hope the listeners take that on board. And my last follow up question before we move on is: What inspired you to apply your knowledge into rugby? Were there any other sports you were interested in at the sort of same sort of time, or was rugby your main passion from a career perspective in applying your knowledge? Yeah, I mean, I think it it, it was in a way because it was my it was my sport. I played it, I loved it. And it was it was great to go and, and do that. And I think the opportunity at Saris came around at the right time. So I kind of shoehorned myself into rugby. Um, but it wasn't actually my my goal at the time. I really wanted to go into track and field because that's why I thought it's, it's at its purest. Um, the kind of the impact you can have as a, as a sports science practitioner is. That's great. And just looking at sport as a bigger picture now from an industry perspective, have you seen sports science influence elite sport from the last 10 years from your experience? Yeah, I mean, it's influenced sport enormously. I think it's not so much 10 years. I think it's the last sort of 50 years that we've seen a huge scientification of sport. It's gone through something of a science revolution quite, quite quietly. But I think that if you look at sort of the how much sport science is valued within the industry and how um, much it's grown um, over, the, as I say, the last 50 years, it's, it's gone from sort of a a really kind of Non, non-existent sort of uh, subject area to being sort of something that is really driving sport forward across the board. Absolutely. And just relating to today's podcast topic now, what core skills do you need to work in high-performance coaching? Yeah, so I think it's, it's soft skills. There's a lot of talk about soft skills at the moment, but I think it really is the case. I think if I tell, uh, I guess, a story, the best coach I've ever come across uh, is a guy called Andy. Um, he's an SNC coach, um, and he doesn't have any of the certificates or degrees or masters or PhDs that that people have these days. But he is second to no one uh, I've ever come across uh, in his ability to forge relationships, like personal relationships with his athletes, with his bosses, with his peers, with his colleagues. He just wipes the floor with it. And a lot of that is because he's a kind of naturally personable guy. But whether by design or not, 
his soft skills are just on the money. He's able to connect with a whole load of different personalities. Um, and then when you get to that situation, half the battle is won because you've got buy-in. Uh, and that's what's a, a really key component to any coaching relationship. Um, I genuinely think that Andy could turn up sort of tomorrow morning and tell his athletes they need to start juggling barbells and they'd, they'd buy and they'll do it. So I think that the soft skills, the ability to communicate with people, how to read situations, being adaptable in those situations, um, those are the things that are not developed by thinking about them, but by doing them. And those are the most important, that's the most important skill set you're going to have uh, working in coaching. Relating to your career development, just really quickly, what skill set have you developed over your years as a coach reflecting now? I actually reflected relatively recently about sort of leadership. Um, I think throughout sort of my sort of late teens and then moving into my early career, I was always told by a lot of people that I was a great leader, I was a natural leader. And I think actually over the last sort of uh, three, four years, I've had to completely change the way that I see leadership. So I think that um, it's not so much a kind of linear progression where I've kind of, oh, I've developed a, a particular skill set. I think the most important lesson that I've learned or the most important skill set that I've learned and then relearned is about leadership. Um, I think I was relatively autocratic in, in the old days when I was younger and um, I had a very sort of uh, polarized view about what leadership was. I think now I'm starting, well, I think I've been more interested in learning more about it, but becoming a better leader by kind of relearning what leadership really is in 2019. And just relating to your career now for where you are, like from an enterprise perspective, what inspired you to set up Harper Performance? Yeah, so for, for those who don't know, and that'll be, I would have thought the majority of your listeners, so the, what I do now is I, I run a, a non-profit social enterprise called, called Harper Performance uh, CIC. And what we do is um, try and tackle inequality in sport and democratize the ongoing transification of global sport. So what inspired me to set up was kind of two things. Um, the first thing was uh, when I left London Scottish and was able to, to go down south and, and visit local sports clubs and the like in, in Zambia, um, I realized that we spend a, an enormous amount of time in sport worrying about fairness during competition. Uh, but how much do we look at fairness in preparation before athletes or, or players step foot on the field or, or on the track? And, and, the, and the reality is very little. We, we worry about sort of milliseconds in a sprint start, um, a, a point of a percentile improvement from doping. And that's, that's quite right. We, we have to do that. But we willingly uh, ignore the 10 to 15% improvement you can get from legitimate forms of performance enhancement through proper sports science support, through sports medicine programs. And that really started to bother me. And the other side of it was that sort of through some of the work I was doing, I had a few consultancy gigs and some of the exposure I had, uh, mainly in, in sub-Saharan Africa, about what current sports development models were. For me, there was a massive gap because there was kind of two types. There's kind of mass participation models whereby we get as many people playing sport as possible, um, more often than not with underqualified and underskilled coaches from sort of uh, from the Western, Western Europe. Uh, going to places like Uganda or um, Zambia or Zimbabwe and, 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 and teaching, quote-unquote, teaching football. And the other side of it is, is boom and bust programs where we, um, we inject a huge amount of, of funding or expertise from, from back home to these environments and we create this huge bubble uh, where we develop, so really quickly develop a, a program that's more often than not just a transplant of what we're doing back home into a completely foreign environment. 
Um, and then more, what ha- tends to happen is that either completely fails, the bubble bursts, the funding gets withdrawn and there's no legacy, um, or eventually the, the people that we've shipped in from, from the UK or, or, or wherever, um, they eventually want to go home. Uh, and we've lost the opportunity then to develop local local talent um, and local practitioners to continue the evolution of of sport in that country. So, so those two things kind of merged together in my head, and I thought, well, like there's something wrong here, um, and we've got to do something about it. So for me, it was about sort of disseminating the knowledge uh, that we have sort of siloed away in some of the biggest economies in the world, and democratizing that scientification of sport. As we've kind of talked about uh, just a minute ago, sort of sport over the last 50, 50 years has, has gone through this sort of scientific revolution. Um, but sport is supposed to be based on this Corinthian spirit that, that everyone has afforded the chance to compete with their fellow man or woman on an equal playing field. But in 2019, that just isn't the case. And a big part of that is the industry that I'm part of and the industry that your listeners are part of, the sports science, the sports medicine, the sports technology. So... HP, uh, Hard Performance, is really about trying to rebalance this area of sports development because we're already seeing a kind of a monopoly of sporting success on a, on a global level clustering around the biggest economies. And, and for me, that's not what support uh, what sport is supposed to be. It's not what's written in the Olympic Charter. It's not what the flowery language of governing bodies all around the world alludes to. Support Sport is supposed to break down all these barriers and unite us all. Um, and for me, and for a lot of people, it's supposed to be a bit of a beacon, sort of guiding the rest of society as to how we, as kind of broadly speaking, humankind, can create windows in our lives of true equality and, and true meritocracy and a, and a real celebration of what, what man or woman can physically and mentally achieve. Uh, uh, but that's not the case uh, if we're shutting out the vast majority of um, the world's population. So, so that's really the kind of driving force behind HP. Tim, I can definitely hear your enthusiasm with, with regards to your mission. Would you mind sharing to listeners some of the services you provide, but could you put it, if possible, into a case study you've already done with the work you've been doing, if that makes sense? Yeah, of course. I think the, the simplest way to describe it is, is what we're doing at the moment. So we're currently engaged in a project in Uganda, which is imaginatively named Project Uganda. And that's in collaboration with a, a local football academy called the Football for Good Academy, which is based in Kampala, the capital city of Uganda, but also in the northern region uh, in Gulu. Uh, and it's also in, in partnership with the Equator Sports Group, which is, a, again, a Kampala-based sports organization that is, is very influential in, in the region. And, and what we're trying to do through Project Uganda is build capacity uh, or the provisions available to support aspiring footballers in the region by working sort of uh, in collaboration with the academy, the staff at the Football for Good Academy, um, developing programs and interventions which are, are locally driven driven and relevant and, and accessible um, locally. Uh, but secondly, it's about creating a sustainable program for long-term development that doesn't rely on sort of foreign intervention or, or international programs like ours. Um, and that's probably the best case study to use. And we, you, what we're doing at the moment is um, – we're launching a an internship called the East Africa Sports Science Internship, where we are taking the very best sports scientists, sports medicine practitioners, uh, athletic development coaches uh, from all over the world. So we have Australian coaches, American coaches, uh, UK-based um, practitioners. We've even got a, a Portuguese uh, slash Gibraltar uh, practitioner involved. 
Uh, and what we're doing is is taking the very best of global best best practice, and we are taking the very best sports science practitioners uh, in the locality in in Kampala, and we're working together to over twelve months develop those practitioners to be able to compete on a global market for sports science. Um, and f- that helps in two ways. The first is that has a knock-on effect to, to local sports science provisions, local sports medicine provisions, in the sense that we're then successfully blending global best practice with best local know-how um, to create relevant and accessible and locally sustainable uh, programs. But also it means that the next year, we, the, the, the graduates from our program can start upskilling other practitioners in the region. Uh, and this can kind of go on and on and on and on. And the goal is within sort of five or 10 years, we're, to, we're going to go back to places like Kampala. And it's, it's our practitioners that will be learning from what's being achieved in the context of being in a, in a quote-unquote developing country. How are they creating interventions? How are they coming up with solutions that are that are relevant uh, to, to their own sort of set of circumstances and will most likely be far more efficient than the resource stacking that we see uh, in, in the Western world. I find this absolutely fantastic. And could you imagine you actually doing this, looking back when you were at um, uh, London Scottish, just out of interest? Because I find from your journey now, this is um, really, really um, enterprising. Yeah, no, I definitely definitely couldn't have seen i think if you'd asked me that question when i'm 22 23 i would have laughed at you because sort of my goals was to to kind of climb the ranks in rugby and then jump over the pond and go to america i used to watch i think it was mike boyle had a thing where he used to go and sort of um travel around facilities in the u.s and i used to love that like going and seeing all like the nfl teams and stuff and that's where i kind of saw my career going um, and now the, the, the kind of reality of where I spend a lot of my time is, is the complete opposite to that. So uh, it's not something I, I expected. It's not something that I ever kind of wanted to do. Uh, I kind of just kind of fell into it and it's kind of snowballed. Just on a personal note, Tim, what have you enjoyed the most from your sports career journey so far? I think there's a lot of things. Um, there's a few bits of silverware, but that, that, that's pretty cool. And, and that, but that really belongs to the players. I think sort of as a, as a strength and conditioning coach or a head of performance or whatever role I had, I think the the thing I've enjoyed the most about my career is is quietly enjoying the success of athletes that I've worked with in the past. And I can't stand the kind of new thing of coaches or support staff kind of laying claim to their athlete's success or athletes they've worked with, their success on places like social media. But but I, I do absolutely love so having a wry smile as you see an athlete that maybe you worked with when they're 13 or 14 getting their opportunity to on, on a global stage or going to a world cup or something i think that's what i honestly kind of find sort of the most rewarding uh, or the most enjoyment from but being honest and being candid i think what i'm doing now although unexpected is probably what i've enjoyed the most in my whole career and it's it's also probably the hardest bit of my career but it's it's definitely uh, something I'm, I'm absolutely loving Tim, I can't express how much I'm enjoying this experience, literally speaking to you just from a journey perspective. And I feel like we're at a great stage of the interview where I'd like to finish with an inspirational question. What three tips would you give to university students who want to pursue a career in coaching? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And I'm kind of going to give you a bit of a non-answer because I think there's, there's almost too much advice for graduates now, uh, which wasn't a, around when I, when I graduated. Um, so I think my, 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 my piece of advice for graduates now is, is to steer your own ship. Um, 
and be humble and, and learn and listen to people because that's a, an absolutely integral part of developing as a person. But you, listen, you're going to be employed, interviewed, guided by a whole load of different people in your career, all of whom are going to have their own agendas and their own ideas about what's right and wrong. But the truth is, you've got to be you. And I think it's a bit of a worrying trend now that we see in the industry that we see graduates coming out who are just these kind of smorgasbords of whatever the latest guru has told them to be, how to act or what to say, what courses to do. In my experience, interviewing them is unbelievably boring. So my piece of advice is to steer your own ship and give the industry you. Um, Take your own path and, and really don't worry too much about being the perfect candidate according to someone else. Um, you and, and your personality, your way of doing things is is unique by its nature. So, so don't lose it. Uh, you've got to embrace it and develop it, build it, improve it, but but really don't lose it. Because if you can be the best version of yourself, you're going to find your niche uh, and you're going to fo- find your role in sport or you won't and you'll do something else and, and the world will keep on spinning. My piece of advice would be to steer your own ship. Tim, that is absolutely fantastic. How can people interact with you online? Yes, so it's probably best to follow the HP Twitter account, which is uh, at Harper Perform, uh, or log on to our website, uh, www.harperperformance.co.uk. That is great to all the listeners listening in. All those links will be on my website relating to this blog post. Tim, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. What an incredible podcast chat with Tim. Honestly, it's podcasts like this is why I do the work I do, because... We established this point earlier on in the podcast, chat with Tim, but Tim's journey is so fascinating from a sports science perspective. And I hope you've learned that lesson as much as I have, that your career is such a journey. It's not just a job, because in my opinion, what I've discovered, a job is just an income stream and a career is a journey where the impact you make in the industry and the sort of legacy with regards to what you leave behind and Honestly, I just find Tim's journey now is so fascinating and he's taking such a different route with such a meaningful purpose and I just wish him the best of luck with that. And relating to today's podcast topic, I hope you've got a better understanding about high-performance sport, coaching development and how it can be applied to different cultures and countries around the world like I was thinking about this really recently we've had some huge global tournaments we've had the cricket world cup we've also had the um, netball world cup as well in the UK and I thought to myself we're so gifted in the UK of the resources we have and sometimes we forget from an industry's perspective that not all countries have the same resources as these big powerhouses in sports such as the UK Australia and America and from an employment perspective or career perspective, it just means there's opportunity around the world where you can get involved in. And actually, I would say more meaningful projects with regards to the work that Tim is doing, for example. So I really do hope this podcast has just opened up your eyes about the different career options in the sports industry. And finally, I really do hope you take on board what Tim said by really steering your own ship with regards to your sports career ambition. So on that note, I really do hope you take control of your ship and make your sports career a reality today. Now, as always, at the end of each interview, I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Tim said, you are a personality. You're already unique. Listen and learn and be humble from those who have gone before you. But steer your own ship and create your own path.